0: Hello and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church Podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what He wants to do in your life.
1: Today, in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we are considering that Jesus, Son of God, the Messiah, was nailed to a cross and he died. Uh, heavy passages, not necessarily what we're trying to, trying to meditate on necessarily, leading up to the cozy holiday season or whatever, but um, but there's a lot of mud in there. <laughs> it makes me think of our Good Friday gathering, if you're here in the spring for a Good Friday gathering, we did a, a gathering that's called a tenebrae gathering, where it's mostly just reading the story, reading the passion narratives on Jesus' way to the cross, and then just being silent. <laughs> that's what I felt all week, I'm like, oh man, so like, you know, I, I don't have to talk about this, like I feel like we could just <laughs> read the account and, uh, and just be silent before God. But here we are, maybe in to preach, so we're gonna do it. As heavy it is, we're gonna look at this passage kind of through the question, Why did Jesus die? And at first blush, it might seem like an obvious answer if you grew up in Sunday school or spending time in church. You know, he died for my sins. He died for forgiveness. He died so I could go to heaven. He died so I don't have to go to hell. And my desire today in our time uh, teaching is to show us that while all those things are abundantly true, they're not the main reason why Jesus died on the cross. Stick with me. One of my ministry jobs uh, years ago was at a church plant where we love talking about the cross. Uh, To quote a pastor from that that tribe of churches, kind of the group of churches we were a part of, uh, he would say, it's Jesus on the bloody cross every single day. Uh, which is kind of a weird thing to say because you know Jesus didn't stay on there every day. He got off the cross and rose again. I remember I was you know learning to preach at the time, and I was supposed to preach on the Virgin Birth. It was Christmas time. Uh, I was supposed to preach on the Virgin Birth, and uh, I, I you know kind of shared what the systematic theology textbook says about the Virgin Birth for I don't know seven or eight minutes, and then boom went to the cross. It was just all across for the whole rest. I got feedback I, like. You, you barely touched on the virgin birth, and then, you know, then you blazed on to the cross, and, you know, I was a little a little headstrong back then, because the cross is the most important thing, and all this stuff. So, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, double imputation, these big theological terms, uh, which deep, deep parts of my formation, uh, and big parts, especially that time of life in that church, and I, and I would die for any of those truths, that Jesus' work on the cross was our substitutionary atonement but when I think about my life my character during that time uh, the the, the lives that we experienced together as leaders of the church are kind of cringe I mean we talked about being dressed in Jesus' righteousness but I know for me at least I was plagued with guilt like is it possible to feel guilty even after somebody forgives you? I think so and then there's an interesting connection between guilt and anger, we we're all pretty angry. Uh, a lot of times anger is a mask for an in, inner guilt. We we're snarky about churches that did things differently than us, unkind, and how we talked about doctrinal issues. Uh, maybe over, you know, if there's truth and love, maybe a little over-focused on truth. We love talking about God's sovereignty and how the cross is evidence that he's for us, but then we'd be anxious and struggle to sleep. <coughs> <coughs> something about how we were thinking about the gospel thinking about Jesus' death on the cross and what kind of savior he was didn't seem to really be producing the fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace kindness, of on and on it wasn't until I started another job at another church where I, sorry, I had a cough <laughs> Where I was told this line that kind of made my neural circuits overload the cross is a means to an end the cross is not an end in and of itself it's a means to something it was meant to accomplish something that God wanted to be accomplished and we see this in our text today A ton. We could talk about the cross. A lot going on in this text here with Jesus on the cross. But I want to talk about the end for which Jesus went to the cross and what that means for our real everyday lives. Because I I think we can embrace and live out the full reason that Jesus died on the cross. Like, hopefully, it will have a similar effect in your life that it had in my life, which is that it changed so much. Let me pray for us real briefly. Father, we come before a text that's heavy, we come before a text that's sad, that makes us feel all kinds of things, we come before uh, truths and doctrines that are precious to us, and to pray, Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to see Jesus on the cross anew, to hear what your word says, and have receptive ways, and that ultimately, God, you would change us by staring at your love displayed uh, for us, with Jesus Christ us. Amen. Well, after being mocked, plugged, nailed to a tree with nails at his wrists and his hands, or at wrists and his ankles, the only way that Jesus can still be alive when you look at how Romans executed people on the cross was to push up on the nails through his ankles to get a breath. This is how you die. When you're crucified, you suffocate. The weight of your own body becomes too much to lift with your diaphragm to get a breath. To get a breath, and you choke and suffocate. One commentator said that the cruelty of the cross was that it made you your own executioner in a way. If you're facing a firing squad. You are know, your blindfold. You sit there and wait for it. If you're laying down on a guillotine, you just like wait. Or to count, and these are passive. But with crucifixion and all of its cruelty, it was up to you to decide when to stop trying, when to stop pushing up for air, when to let it go and die. Would it be three hours? Would it be six hours? Was it was it more of a defiant thing to die quick and get it over with? Was it a more defiant thing to last as long as possible? I don't even know, like when, when, can you let yourself suffocate or do you have to get to your breaking point? you know, like there's some kind of subconscious need for air that kicks in, yeah, I, I don't know, but it's excruciating, that's where that word comes from, is crucifixion. And I go into all that physical pain about crucifixion, because Jesus' words that we see here in this text, the only red letters in this text, Show us, I think, that the physical pain the experiencing of the cross—is not the main thing that he is focusing on. Look at verse thirty-three, Mark fifteen, verse thirty-three. At noon, darkness came over the whole land till three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God, why?" have you forsaken me? The most excruciating thing about the cross was the fact that for the first time in Jesus' eternal existence he was separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That Jesus, as part of the Trinity, who existed eternally in this beautiful, loving, intimate, divine dance, this divine and triune relationship between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, is now cut off from that forsaken by the, the divine mystery of the Trinity one God in persons it's being forsaken, being rejected if you come up to me after the service and you're like, I don't like you I don't want to ever see you again I don't want to talk to you ever again I'll, I'll be sad You know, but if Camille, my wife, comes up and says that same thing I will be devastated the deeper the love, the longer the relationship. The more intimately your lives are intertwined, the deeper the devastation when there is abandonment. And here we have Jesus who has lived in perfect love for all eternity within the Trinity being cut off, separated from God's presence. Why is Jesus experiencing this relational Fracturing this abandonment on the cross? Well, to answer this question, we need to go back to the beginning of the story. Turn back to your Bibles to Genesis 1. Sometimes when we reduce the cross to just Jesus died for my sins, I know in my life when I was kind of living in that world where the, the gospel, everything was just like forgiveness of sins. It's like, what's the point of the Old Testament? It was just a kind of a warm-up, the lead-up. It doesn't really help us. We just focus on the cross. But we see that the cross is the center of the story. Everything's pointing forward to it or back or referring back to it. So look at uh, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. This is the creation narrative. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our livestock and all the wild animals. Over all the creatures that live among them, verse twenty-seven. So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created the male and female He created them. So God creates humanity as the pinnacle of His creation and places them in the garden where He can, enjoy, where they can enjoy the world that He's made, the work that He's given them to do, and more than anything, where humans can enjoy a perfect, loving relationship, perfect fellowship. God and with each other. They were naked and unashamed. Perfect creatures living in perfect communion. This means, yes, literally they were naked, like they did not have clothes on, but it meant so much more than that. It meant this relational soul intimacy, where they had nothing to hide. They were perfectly known by each other and by God. This is my friend. This, my friends, is what we were created to experience. This is plan A, this is God's intent for us as humans. This perfect relationship with him, naked and not ashamed before him, before each other. But you know how the story goes, Flip over a page or so, to chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the servant, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat from the fruit that is in the middle of the garden, the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the servant said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God and good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So a lot we can say about this passage, pretty foundational to understand the reality, not to mention the rest of scripture. God's enemy comes down in the form of a snake and he tells the great and terrible lie that is the cause of all the problems. Maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe he doesn't really want what's best for you and he's holding out on you. That's the terrible lie that's settled into all of human hearts. Maybe God won't meet my needs, and so like Eve, I need to reach out and try to meet my needs on my own. Do you see the relational shattering here? Yes, there's disobedience, but disobedience is, is a relational thing. We obey, we do things out of obedience, out of love. That is, the really, obedience is meant to... Keep a relationship good. Even something like with the government, you know, we're not like intimate with the government, but the relationship with the government is better. When you, when you what? You obey the laws. And then it's tragic. Instead of walking with God in the cool of the day, they're now naked and ashamed. And they're hiding, covering themselves. Because of sin, the lie, the disobedience, that fractures relationships, Humanity is now separated from God. It's heartbreaking and also beautiful that God says, Where are you? The first time you ever had to ask that question. Where are you? And then look at the end, the last verse of chapter 3, verse 24. Because of sin says, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, or angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So now humanity, because of sin, this broken relationship, they had to leave the garden. With flaming swords, the garden is guarded so that humans could not enter enter into God's presence. Sin is first and foremost a relational issue, a lack of trust and love that leads to a self-driven, self-focused effort to meet our own needs on our own. We're separated from God. Romans wrote passage, the wages of sin is death, because sin separates us from God, which is the source of life, the source of truth and love that humans were were created uh, to need in order to thrive. And so justice, because of sin, justice would say that we all deserve, like Adam and Eve, to wander the world alone, straining and toiling to try to meet our needs alone. According to whatever seems right, right to us, and any plan to meet our needs apart from God will never work. God is like the sun. Without it, we can't see. It. We stumble around in the dark, breaking things and stubbing our toes, or walking off a cliff. God is like the sun. Without it, nothing can live. No plants grow. There's no food. Everything withers, like in those you know post-apocalyptic scenarios where there's nuclear winter. The sun is blotting blotted out from bombs or a volcano or something, nothing grows, everything dies, it's cold. But God does not give up his people. The rest of the Old Testament would show us that he pursues them, provides for them, gives them his law, instructions for how to live and align their lives with his design. But trust is broken. Where trust is broken, no amount of law no amount of rules can, can fix it. He fixed the lie that maybe God isn't good. Maybe these rules aren't good. Maybe he's holding are there because he doesn't love us or he's trying to just control us. That relational mistrust poisons everything. So what can be done to undo this terrible lie? Well, this is why Jesus came to earth. (coughs) Jesus came to earth to restore us back to Eden where God and humanity can dwell as one. can walk together in the cool of the day to rescue God's people from the forsakenness that we we deserve. Living in a wasteland created by the lie that God might not actually love us. So when Jesus shows up on the scene to begin this rescue mission, what's the first thing that he says that Mark records him saying in Mark chapter 1? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand so repent and believe the gospel this is him saying turn, repent to turn from your own ways of meeting your own needs and return to the kingdom of God. Turn to the kingdom of God which is life with God under his rule. It's now available in me because I'm here. You can experience life with God under his rule. Now, on the cross a lot is happening but Jesus has read letters in Mark 15 that we read He's quoting Psalm 22. He's quoting scripture, praying scripture. He's pushing up on the nails in his ankles. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what we see is all of our sin being put on Jesus, which is to say he's bearing the wages of sin, which is to say he's being forsaken by God, the source of light and life. He's paying the penalty, which is to be separated from God. He's absorbing all the forsakenness that we all deserve because we believed the terrible lie and chose to not trust God. Flipping back to Mark 15, we get the key verse of why Jesus died on the cross that ties all this together. Genesis, the cross, everything. But flipping to Mark 15, look at this. This is the burning center (coughs) of why Jesus came to die. Verse 37 says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus died, the curtain was torn. I cannot overstate how crucial these two verses are, how immensely significant that the first thing Mark says after he records that Jesus died is that the curtain It's so significant, and I think we see this because it's kind of out of place here. If this was a movie, this would feel like a really random, like we've got Jesus dying on the cross, a super intense moment, and boom. Now we're like cutting over here to the temple. Uh, The temple, which is not a a super primary setting for the Gospel of Mark. Just a few things happened in the Gospel of Mark in the temple, and those uh, were kind of in the outer courts. But if we're reading this visually, we would see Jesus breathe his last, and then a hard cut to the temple, the curtain of the temple being torn in two. We'd be looking at the innermost court, the Holy of Holies. And the the temple at this time in the Old Testament had three sections, three courts, kind of like moving closer and closer to the middle. And in the middle was the Holy of Holies with the ark. Of the covenant, God's Shekinah,
0: Lord, the place
1: on earth where the very presence of God dwelt. The Holy, Holies, Holy of Holies was a small place. It was closed off with a thick curtain, probably about as thick as your hand, very substantial. And when you read the details in the Old Testament on how they were to craft these curtains, the, the very detailed instructions on how to build the temple and craft all the different parts. You see that the curtain was not blank. It was not just like one big, you know, red curtain or whatever, but it had embroidered onto it an image of that, of, of that scene. Genesis 3.24, of angels with flaming swords. Just like what Adam and Eve would have seen as they walked away from the Garden of Eden, that was on the curtain, barring the entrance to the Holy of Holies, barring the entrance to the presence of God. And the Holy of Holies, only one person, one time of year could go in. It was the high priest, and he could go on Yom Kippur, which is Hebrew for the Day of Atonement. And It was a huge deal, enormous preparation. He'd bathe, put on an unstained, pure, white linen robe, and enter the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices to atone for sins. But he had to do it three times. Three sacrifices, several ones. He'd go in first, make an animal sacrifice for himself. After that, he'd come out, bathe, get all clean again, put on new, fresh, white linen, go in a second time. And that was to offer sacrifice for all the priests and religious leaders. Then he'd come out, bathe again, get clean again, new, fresh, white linen robe, and go in a third time to offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Year after year, animal after animal, this is what happened on the day of atonement. And so Mark, doing this hard cut to the temple, the hard cut to seeing this massive thick curtain ripped in two, showing us the reason Jesus died to be our true high priest, to atone for the sins of the people once and for all, not with the animal blood, but with his own blood. And the curtain toward because his sacrifice was sufficient, the embroidered animals of angel, with, uh, embroidered angels with flaming swords were split apart. And this shows us the means. The cross is a means to an end, and that end is reuniting God with his people. <clears throat> the cross is not the end in and of itself, it was a means to reunite. God with His people. Forgiveness did happen on the cross. We all need forgiveness, but that wasn't the point. It was the means that needed to happen, that we had to be forgiven, so that the end of oneness with Christ, communion with Jesus, could be experienced. So sinful humanity could live in the presence of a holy God. So now that all who trust in Jesus can become children of God, beloved of God, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That means we we join the divine dance. We're at the the table with the Trinity in the presence of God because of Jesus' work on the cross. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but it changed everything for me. It means that the the point is not just forgiveness and to get other people to believe the forgiveness. The point is union with God, intimacy with God. Yes, we need forgiveness so that we can enter in to the holy holies. So often, I would hear the gospel shared like Jesus died for your sins, or Jesus died to pay the penalty so that you don't have to go to hell. But all of those things truly serve a greater purpose. It'd be like saying that you work to make money. I mean, some of us probably do. the money doesn't help you do anything. Like, if you just work to only have money, you'll die. We spend money to get food and a place to stay warm. Like, money is a means to an end. Or be like you buy groceries in order to cook them. You know, is it like it, it's like missing the point of what we are, of what the end is. My single, my favorite's like single verse gospel presentation of scriptures, 1 Peter 3.18, which I think says it crystal clear. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ suffered to bring you to God, to bring you back into the family. Forgiveness and atonement are are means to bring you and me to God. So we can enjoy life with God. We can participate in the life Of the Trinity. Mind-blowing thing. Bible trivia time. Where is the Holy of Holies now? Like for based on the New Testament. Where does the presence of God live now on the earth? In your body? In the church. That's staggering. It's no longer this place that someone will die if they don't enter with a clean white robe and offer a sacrifice. It's now in your body. We can experience life with God now. Jesus came to restore us to Eden. Walking with God in the cool of the day to recover the intimacy of, that God created us for back in the beginning. The first church I pastored uh, was right across from the county courthouse in jail. The jail was pretty much like directly across the street from like the office entrance, entrance to our building. And so pretty regularly we would have guys. Come and ring the church church doorbell, who had just been released from jail. Their penalty was paid, their debt to the government forgiven. But there they were, alone, standing on Stewart Avenue with a dead phone, no money. And so they walked next door and ring the doorbell and asked, you know, to charge their phone or call a friend or get a meal or something. Their debt was paid for whatever reason they were in there, but now they were on their own. And when we, when we reduce the gospel to just forgiveness, just its legal judicial implications, I, think I sometimes I wonder if we live like those guys. Like we got out of jail. Like technically we don't have the debt anymore. But now, but now what do I do? Now, now I'm on my own. And so often Christians live like everyone else. Just well, I. I I prayed a prayer so my dad's taken care of but now I'll just live like everyone else and it doesn't matter because I'll go to heaven when I die. In my experience a lot of the big busy church in the U.S. has functionally reduced the gospel to just forgiveness and missed out on life with God. Missed out on God's loving embraces communion with God. Which is why we have this phenomenon of people who say they're Christians because they prayed a prayer, you know, 30 years ago at BBS and believe in a, a fact in their head that Jesus died for their sins, but are just as anxious, worldly, insecure, bitter, focused on money and career, whatever, as, as, as anyone else. Very little life change. Very little of the abundant life that Jesus died so that we could have. Because it is God's presence that changes us. It's God's presence. Experience perfect love. Be rooted and grounded in love that transforms us. It's not just a legal fact of forgiveness. Like, can you still feel guilty even if someone has forgiven you? Yes. What well, makes what assuages that guilt if that person who has forgiven you delights in you, moves towards you, wants to be with you? does for us. The cross opens up access to God. Opens up the possibility of life with God. The Hebrew, this is my book, Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy that that he saw that was set before him? It was you. Intimacy with you, inviting you to be at the table with God, enjoying fellowship with Him, seeing God and humanity dwelling as one for all eternity. The cross shows us the God of the universe, the God who created you, wants to be with you, wants to know, you. wants to know all the parts of your life. Do you have strength to hear that good news? Strength to to, uh, to imagine a God that wants that kind of intimacy. We're not just begrudgingly wipe away your sin record because He has to legally because of what Jesus did, but because He, he wiped that away so that you could draw near. Think about uh, adoption, another metaphor that Scripture uses to describe what happens to us in the gospel. And if you've ever walked with someone through adoption, it costs a ton of money, and it takes forever to finally get to that moment where there's a there's an action of a judge, a legal action of a judge that makes it official. And Now that child is, is yours, belongs in the family. What is the point of going through all that heartache heart, and spending all that money? Is it just to have the paperwork, just have the legal action? No, it's so that that child can now experience life in the family, the joy of the family, resting, and working, and playing, and enjoying, and growing in the family. This is the point of the Gospel. And so, if we just stop at forgiveness, if we, did, we we miss the whole point. We miss the whole point of adoption. Life in the family of God. Like, if that, if that child got adopted into this healthy family, leaving this family of abuse and neglect, but just kept on living like someone and living in the old way. That would be tragic. Or if the, the child got adopted and just felt so guilty that they would spend all that money on me that I just need to I just need to be like Cinderella, I just need to do all that the house, I'll just be a servant, you know, I'll just do all the chores because you paid all that money, you went through all that hard work to adopt like, that would be tragic form of adoption. And we want the child to experience life in the family. So what do we do? What is the response? You look at Jesus on the cross being forsaken in our place. The response is to is to enter the Holy of Holies, enter, say yes to the presence of God, set up our lives to where we live in his presence. And there's lots of beautiful ways to do this, which is why I'm, I'm kind of a, a nerd about spiritual disciplines. Not because they make God love you more, not because they get you into heaven, not because but because there are ways that you can abide in Jesus, you can set up your life to create space so that God's goodness and presence can be there. Like, it, we, we, we all talk about God being a relationship. Christianity is a relationship. and <laughs> any relationship that's going to be good requires space, time together, speaking and listening, working together, sharing things together, resting together. My, my hope is that we as a church family can grow, set up our lives around sets of rhythms, sets of disciplines that help us lean in to life with God, keep life with God at the center of, of our lives, uh, individually and corporately. So i say that because there's a lot of things I'd love to say about ways to communicate with God, and <laughs> it's like my favorite thing to talk about. Uh, but as I prayed about it this week, thinking about it, what what to invite us into is I, I think that for, for some of us, maybe most of us, the invitation is not addition, adding a new practice or discipline uh, onto
0: our packed schedule, trying to cram
1: some communion with God into our, our days. Because I think that the invitation for many of us that we need to hear is to sub- subtraction. In order to say yes to the intimacy with God that Jesus died so you could experience, we have to have space on the calendar and, and the emotional bandwidth to be with God. We need to cut something out, slow down our pace instead of just trying to cram Jesus into the those crannies of our overloaded schedule. I believe it's impossible to enjoy God's presence in a hurry. It's impossible to enjoy any relationship in a hurry. It's impossible to love and be loved in, in a hurry. If I told Camille we had a date night scheduled and it was 15 minutes in between Johnny's soccer practice and getting back to church for a meeting, I, I don't know how much intimacy would be cultivated. Mitch, she would feel super loved and I wouldn't probably feel very loved by her. Intimacy is created slowly. We waste time. With People we love. We say no to other things, good things. Prioritize people we love. Or, in the words of Jesus from the story of Mary and Martha, we choose the better portion. It's not a question of bad. Choosing bad and evil is it's a question of choosing what's best. What does the Holy Spirit bring into mind right now that you could say no to, that you could let go of? Getting into the holiday season, like hold tight, a lot of busy stuff, like well, what, what this holiday season might you be able to subtract in order to be unhurried, and instead of getting to January burnt out and exhausted, getting to a full of God's love for you. concrete way to step into this intimacy is to join our prayer watch tomorrow. Say no to something tomorrow so that you can take an hour. Or a prayer watch and just be with God. I'd really encourage you to check out our prayer room next to the library. It might seem you know silly or not unnecessary, but there's something to be said. into a new space that's set apart for prayer, apart from your distractions. Just be alone with God. Cancel a meeting, reschedule pickleball, take everything off from work. Just turn off your TV and sign up for an hour or come to one of our prayer gatherings at 7 a.m. noon or 7 p.m. And then maybe, you know, maybe come an hour early and do alone and join a prayer gathering, stay late, or something like that. And just show up and say, I'm, I'm here, God. What do you have to say to me? I see Jesus on the cross dying so that we can be together. Here we are. We're together. What do you have to say to me? So you can see what he says. What kind of love might be waiting for you? If you respond to Jesus' work on the cross by drawing you to God. And then, as we think about the story of Carl Road, what kind of renewal might we see as a church if we were a group of people who prioritized above everything else God's presence? <clears throat> to close, I want to read you my favorite kid's book. I'm always looking for an excuse to read my favorite kid's book. I've read it before, but I don't want to read it again. This is called The Garden of the the Cross. I'm just going to read this and pray. The pictures will be up on screen. Storytime, of Pastor Josh. <laughs> a very long time ago, right here in this world, there was a garden. In the garden, everything was wonderful. The world was full of laughing and playing and smiling and fun. There was nothing bad ever. There was no one sad ever. Best of all, God was there. He made it all. He was in charge of it all. And he loved it all. The speech bubble is God saying, hello, Adam. Hello, Eve. People can see God and just enjoy being with God. Eve,
2: God's here. He wants to walk with me. And Eve says, yay,
1: I bet it's going to be yesterday. It was wonderful to live with God. But then one day, the people did a terrible thing. They decided they did not want to do what God said. They decided they wanted a world without God in charge. God calls this sin, and sin spoils things. So sin has no place in God's wonderful garden. God said to the people, you can't live with me in my garden anymore, and he sent them outside. To show the people they had to stay outside, God put some warrior angels in front of the garden. The angels were like a big keep outside. Now things were sometimes bad and people were sometimes sad. But people still kept sinning because they didn't want God to be in charge. So no one could come into God's wonderful place. God said, because of your sin, you can't come in. God wanted people to remember, it's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin you can't come. So he told the people to build a special building called his temple, where he would live. In the middle of the temple was the most wonderful place in the world. The place where God was, with nothing bad, nothing sad. It was very exciting. But then God told people to put a big curtain around this wonderful place. The curtains had pictures of warrior angels on it. It was a big, without sign. For 400 years, the temple curtain reminded like what God said, it's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come. Babies became grown-ups and had babies, and those babies became grown-ups and had babies, and those babies became grown-ups and had babies. Hundreds of summers and winters passed by, and they keep out a curtain, and stayed in the temple. Then, one day, God the Son came to live in this world as a person. He was called Jesus. Jesus always did what God said. Jesus never sinned, and Jesus visited the temple where the chief and Jesus knew that things were sometimes bad and sometimes sad. Jesus said that God had sent him to open the way back to God's wonderful place where nothing would be bad and no one sad. But people still didn't want to let God be in charge, so they decided to put Jesus on a cross to die. It was the most bad thing that had ever happened. It was the most sad day of all time. But Jesus had a plan. He had always planned to die on the cross. What a strange plan. Why would God's Son plan to die? On the cross, Jesus took our sin. All the bad things we do, all the sad things they cause, Jesus took them all from us. And when He did, something amazing, astonishing, astounding happened. The curtain tore. God had ripped up the keep outside. God's wonderful place is open again. It is open again because Jesus died, and we can go in. After the crowd, after Jesus died, his friends put him in a tomb. They were very sad. For two days, nothing happened. Then, the next morning, Jesus' friends went to see his body in the tomb, and it wasn't there. A little later on, Jesus' friends were all together, and suddenly Jesus was there, alive. Suddenly, his friends weren't sad. Now they were so, so happy. God had brought Jesus back to life so that he could live in God's wonderful place forever. And Jesus sent everyone an invitation to come and live with him there too. He tells us, God says it's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't in. But I died on the cross to take your sin, so now all my friends can now come in. <laughs> we can live with God forever. There will be nothing bad, no one said, we will see God, speak to God, just enjoy being with God, just as He planned. It will be wonderful to live with Him. And it's all because of Jesus. We will say every day, thank you, King Jesus, you're amazing. You can start saying that today.
0: for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a -A K-A-R-L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that, so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.